Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to another podcast of Out of the Question, where we seek to go behind the questions that many people ask. I'm Charles Roberts. And I'm joined by Andrea Schwartz, my co-host. This is being recorded on May the 2nd, and Andrea and I have been talking about a couple of issues. And Andrea raised a question that we want to talk about today. Scripture tells us that as followers of Jesus, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. We are engaged in spiritual battles. But that raises an interesting question. Andrea, you thought this one up. What's that question? The question is, if we're called to combat because warfare involves combat, must we be combative? Are they the same thing? Can we engage as the Christian soldiers, you know, the the hymn goes, onward Christian soldiers marching us to war. Does that mean we need to be combative in a verbal sense or in our attitudes with those who disagree with us? Is that the essence of our combat in this spiritual war. Yes, and that is a very important issue, um, both because we are in spiritual warfare. As I said a moment ago, Scripture tells us this, and there's no coincidence that that language is used. And the reality that we have to deal with is that we are constantly having to engage the wiles of the devil, the fiery arrows of Satan, and numerous areas in which we live day to day. And so it requires us to be ready for battle. But the question is, what is the nature of that warfare? And are we to engage, say, our fellow believers with whom we may have some disagreement, whether it be over the color of the carpet in the church or over baptizing infants or not, or speaking in tongues or any number of these kind of issues? Do we engage such issues with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the same attitude as we would say with some issue like uh, human abortion, the gay rights agenda, and those sorts of things. What do you think, Andrea? When we talk about going behind the question, I think it's important to identify where do we get our view of warfare. Now, the scripture certainly gives us plenty of examples in the Old Testament of battles and warfare. So a, a great success for the children of Israel and a great defeat for the people of Jericho was when the walls of Jericho came down. But this was not a frontal assault where they had those kinds of weapons. Clearly, what they were asked to do made no sense from a human perspective. And yet, when it was carried out to the degree that it was carried out faithfully, the walls came down. Well, a lot of our view, I think, on war and combat has a lot to do with all those movies we've watched in terms of campaigns during wars that have taken place where the television cameras were rolling or reenactments and depictions of what the combat looked like. But we have to divorce the idea of combat in any sort of war Is it righteous or not? Was the war itself righteous? Was the manner in which it was carried out righteous according to scripture? Or is it just what we think? So I think it's not 
a stretch for some Christians to think as we are combating the wiles of the devil and the manifestations of sinful man interacting with each other, that we've got to act like these warriors that have been depicted like in Braveheart, you know, screaming with our weapons running down the field. And that's the view we have of the combat of this spiritual war. And I think some of that, uh, at least among people of our tradition and in our theological circles, really going back to the time when R.J. Rushdoony's writings became popular, is the realization that apart from whatever the issues are relating to the anti-Christian world, uh, the anti-biblical world, within the framework, the larger framework of Christianity, there has been this attitude of retreat, an attitude of cultural surrender. And so when people caught the vision and the understanding of what uh, Dr. Rashtuni, among many others, were writing about, especially concerning the post-millennial eschatology of hope and eschatology of victory, there was a zeal on the part of some folks to really storm the barricades and set things right. And it didn't always end up as well as some people might have hoped it would, because, you know, we're enjoined, you know, in Scripture, not only to be prepared for spiritual warfare, putting on the breastplate of righteousness and, uh, you know, all, all the, the description of the, you know, the Roman soldiers, our army uh, or legionnaires outfit. Um, but we're also encouraged in Scripture to be at peace with each other. You know, Paul writes in Romans twelve eighteen that insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with others. And that's a key point, as it depends on you, because a lot of it does. And I think that's one of the strong implications of what he was saying there. So, yes, we, we have these images of warfare, whether it be verbal or physical, that are not always subject to or been subjected to the, uh, the searchlight and the, uh, the focus of Holy Scripture. Two points. When you said so much as it depends on you. The truth is everything depends on us because we're the only people we have the capacity to really change. Exactly. Yes. Right. So he was really basically saying that's like when Jesus said, I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. Well, he was saying I came for everybody because you're all sinners. So it's not like, oh, well, OK, there were those people he didn't come for, those who weren't the sinners. It was a method of saying you're all sinners. But If you go back to the passage in Ephesians that talks about all this apparel that the warrior wears, most of it is defensive, and only one of it is offensive in the sense of the sword of the spirit. So if you are going to combat in this spiritual war, the word of God has to be your primary and, quite frankly, your most effective weapon. It's interesting that with the proliferation of study Bibles, some of these things themselves almost look like weapons. I, I, I won't call any of the names of these things, but some of these things are several thousand pages thick, you know, and it looks like something you could just about slam somebody's head with. I, I use that as a metaphor to say that's unfortunately the way some people use God's word. You know, God's word can be misused in a variety of ways, and the heretic, you know, misquotes or misapplies scripture in a way that does damage to orthodox doctrine. Well, those of traditional belief can also misuse it in a way that, uh, you know, is in total violation to the spirit of Jesus who told his disciples in Mark chapter 9, verse 50, that they were to be at peace with each other. You know, I don't know who said this. I've quoted this so many times in different, to different places and different people. When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, we're not called to be hammers. 
we're called to be followers of Jesus. Now, yes, that means sometimes we, we do need to be uh, strong in our defense of the faith and our defense of the innocent and standing up for God's standards of righteousness and justice, but not in the way those who hate God do. Savagery, belligerence, those are the bywords of those in rebellion against God. And you can see this reflected and say, for example, in the book of Daniel, where, you know, Daniel was thrown to the lion's den and he was thrown to the lion's den at the behest of men who conspired behind his back to have that happen to him. Well, when their plan was foiled, not only had those men thrown to the lions who conspired against Daniel, he also had their wives and children thrown to the lions. You know, that type of overkill is a pagan thing. That is not a, a God standards of justice. And the same thing applies when we are engaged in discussion, debate, and disagreement with our fellow believers, or even with non-believers. You know, we're, we're not called to act like the most savage, bitter, sarcastic people. And, you know, we see this, too, in the entertainment industry. Uh, I, I don't know where the turn came, but, you know, there, there's a place where you can go back, if anybody took the time to do it, and watching sitcoms on television or the, the type of comedy that became popular in movies, and something began to change in the mid-20th century, maybe even a little earlier, where the humor drifted from slapstick type of things to sarcasm and attack things, you know. And uh, this then becomes the whole way that people find humor, and that is to be acidic uh, and acerbic in their comments to each other. Exactly. I mean... My husband and I, as we were becoming more orthodox, and I'll put that in quotes, used to have heated disagreements where now I would categorize it as hitting each other over the head with the Bible. He would tell me I wasn't submitting, and I was saying, you're not loving me the way Christ loves the church. And now we were like exchanging these barbs as opposed to saying, wait a minute. The law of God is meant to help us live according to the way God wants us to live. So if we're not focusing on restoring our relationship with trying to find the areas of disagreement and then go back and say, what does God's word say about this? And if we need additional help, we do it. I think we sometimes think that at the end, they're going to either be someone vanquished on the ground and this is even true when you're dealing with your children. You don't want to win the battle because you used means that weren't godly. Sometimes you have to be patient and long-suffering and recognize that you're in the midst of a process. And as you pointed out, as much as it pertains to you. So someone throws a barb, you don't have to throw a barb back. It's not tit for tat. That's certainly not scriptural especially when we have God's assurance that there's some fights you don't have to win. Vengeance is mine. I remember many years ago now when I finished my first semester, first year, excuse me, at seminary, uh, my wife and I lived in an apartment that was owned by an elder in a reformed church in the area where the, the seminary was located. We moved out of that apartment after living there for a year and when we returned to Philadelphia when we were returning to Philadelphia we were going to be living in a different apartment so we left on good terms with the uh, the owner and I got a bill in the mail from from the power company saying that I owed a certain amount of money and I couldn't believe it because I did I wasn't living there I wasn't using the the power so I was quite angry 
with this elder, and um, I called him up. But before I did, I thought of every which way from Friday that I was going to argue with this guy and let him know how angry I was and upset I was and how unjust this was. I don't think I have ever been so disarmed and thrown off balance in my life. Because when I started in with this fella, you know what he did? He, he said, well, you know, Charles, I understand where you're coming from. This is the way we normally do it. But if you're that upset, don't worry about it. <laughs> I, I sort of, I was sort of like the Ralph Cramden, hamana, hamana, you know, I, wait a minute. I've got 500 other things I want to blast you with here, but I couldn't. And, and he wasn't being manipulative, but he was practicing this very thing that we're talking about. At least that's the way it came across to me. You know, and it, it left impression because this is a long time ago. Yes, it, unfortunately, it is a long time ago, and it depended on him, and he was being at peace with me, and that is a prime example. You know, Jesus, this is a re- really remarkable thing. I, I referred to it a moment ago in Mark, Mark chapter 9, verse 50. It reads in the ESV, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and, and be at peace with one another. Another translation says salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? Maintain salt among yourselves and keep peace among And it's interesting that the, the saltiness, you know, the impact that you're going to have is directly related, according to Jesus, with being at peace with one another. Add to that the fact that if we can't get this right in our most personal relationships within the family... There's no reason for us to imagine that the world should pay any attention to what we have to say. So threatening your children is one way of getting compliance. Godly consequences is another. And instructing them along the way and not having this view that says every time they're defying me, and I've got to stomp this out, as opposed to recognize that I'm going to see sin in my children, And part and parcel of training them is to point it out, to correct them, and then also to let them see that just because I'm the mom doesn't mean I'm always right. And I think it's an easy trap to fall into to baptize whatever you do is right and criticize the other guy. You know, you made an interesting comment at the beginning about how our concepts of warfare and combat have been conditioned by the meme-like impact of modern entertainment and movies and television. And that is so true. But there's an interesting analogy there as well, in that because we have an unconstitutional approach to warfare in these days, and we have a standing army which was never envisioned by our founding fathers, and even you go back as far as the ancient Romans, they typically in the early history, in their most successful history, did not have a standing army. The people who made up the legions were farmers. They were ordinary Roman citizens who were fighting, uh, you know, for the glory of the empire, so to speak. And so consequently, they did not have to do what the modern military does, which is take an average man and teach him to kill people. Most people are not inclined to do that. And I don't know where I came across these statistics somewhere about I think it was in World War II, somebody had done an analysis. I mean, you, people can Google and find this if they want. That the average soldier was found uh, a high percentage of the time intentionally shooting over the heads of their intended targets because they just could not bring themselves to kill another human being. If you're going to surmount that with a standing military and, and train someone to be a killer, 
That takes a lot of work and effort. But guess what? After it's over and done with, you can't just flip a switch and then turn them back into, you know, Mr. Nice Guy. And this is one reason we see this problem uh, among the, the military today with suicides and depression and all these horrible things that happen to these unfortunate folks. Well, so the point is, is that if you are revved up and programmed to be constantly in a mode of combat, and let's face it, there are situations in terms of, you know, self-defense or military campaign where you need to be revved up like that, I guess. But the point is, 99% of the time, you're not going to have to be in that way. But what do you do when you are? And, and what does that look like? Can you think of an example of, uh, of somebody, I don't mean personally, but let's sort of gin up the, the generic combative person. What would that sound like or look like? Well, actually, I have a real-life example. My chiropractor was telling me about one of his patients at one point, and he was noting that when young men join the military, they spend six weeks of basic training where they're drilled to obey whatever they're told they're, and to comply, and they're going to be judged if they don't. So there really isn't a lot of thinking involved. It's like you do what I say because I'm your commanding officer. And then they learn how to assemble a gun, fire a gun, take apart a gun, clean a gun, and wherever they go in combat, they have this weapon. He says, but they don't train them how to not be that way anymore. And he was telling me about one patient who walked around and held on to a pencil in his pocket or a small flashlight because it was so foreign to him to go around without a weapon. He was so conditioned to it that, and he couldn't approach, you know, a shadow as he was walking up to something because he had been in combat. And so by way of analogy, if we think that the way we have to convert the masses is by force or how we're going to win our argument among brothers and sisters, we've really adapted a paradigm that isn't consistent with trusting the Holy Spirit to accomplish that end in that person because it's only the Holy Spirit who can. You know, the model that Jesus gives us in his own life and ministry, where he was on more than a few occasions under attack by the Pharisees and the scribes, those who hated and resented him, many times he didn't answer them, or he was very short and precise with his answer. You know, he didn't do what we might call flamethrowing, and he did his fair share of criticism of them, but he didn't go looking for it. He didn't go out and intentionally try to engage these people in verbal combat. I'm reminded of something uh, Bertrand Russell talked about in his early life in the days in the, uh, I think he went to Cambridge University before World War I, when there was a lot of humanistic hubris among the academic intelligentsia type and this great hope and expectation that modern science was going to finally bring in the dawn of a, a millennial age, a humanistic millennial age. And a lot of people were embracing atheism. And he knew somebody who would walk into the dining hall and loudly proclaim, who believes in God nowadays, I would like to know. That, that's sort of the combative attitude uh, that people have who are zealots for the wrong reason. And unfortunately, we do know some Christians that way. I, I remember, if I can continue to reminisce a bit, when I was an undergrad student uh, at the university that I attended, 
there was a fellow who used to show up several days a week outside our student union building. And this was in the early 1970s, mid-1970s. And he had a van that he parked on the street. And he placarded the van with these hand-painted signs that had all manner of scripture verses on them. And then he would stand on the sidewalk where all the students would go back and forth in and out of the student union building and the cafeteria and that sort of thing. And he would hand out Bible tracts. And I mean, this guy looked like he was mad at the world. And the placards that he had with the Bible verses were all about hellfire and damnation. There was nothing encouraging or uplifting about any of it. Uh, I'll never forget that guy. One day, and I was at the time myself not a Christian, but I walked by him and I said, oh, a preacher of doom, eh? And I mean, he really got upset about that and went after me verbally. I just kept walking. But that, that's a pretty good example, I think, of somebody who was ready to do combat. I, I really didn't get the idea that he was ready to minister the love of Jesus, whatever I knew about it at the time. You just got the idea that this guy was, uh, he was there to do battle, and he wanted to make sure that you knew he was probably not happy with you because you didn't believe like he did. We're going to make it so that in order to win, our opponent has to be vanquished. He has to or she has to feel like she's lost everything, then we're really carrying over in pride. We're just saying, this is all about me obtaining the victory. And that's why I believe if you really take God's word seriously, we're supposed to let our light shine. Not so somebody says, wow, look at that light. That's a great light. That's an amazing light. We're supposed to let our light shine. So the good works that we do end up being the true reflection of our Father in heaven. You know, the biggest combat victim of God the Father was God the Son. He received the full wrath so that we wouldn't. And if we communicate the wrath of God and eliminate the fact that that wrath was totally poured out on his Son, then we've missed the important analogy in terms of how we will go about fulfilling the Great Commission. And that goes back to an earlier discussion we had on the, the subject of mercy ministry. And we talked about at that time, and it's definitely worth repeating here, I think, that both in terms of the life and ministry of Jesus and the earliest followers of Jesus in the savagery and paganism of the Roman Empire, the faith of Christianity spread like wildfire over a period of time in that context, not because of people engaging in fierce, precise theological debates. I was talking to somebody the other day about uh, Dr. Bonson's debate uh, with Gordon Stein. It stands as a great example of Christian apologetics trouncing atheism. Well, that's all well and good, and that, that's what Dr. Bonson needed to do at the time. But look, the, the history of the spread of Christianity is not based on things like that, as important as that may have been in that occasion. We look at Jesus. What was he doing? Was he engaging in fierce theological and severe debates with people and trouncing them verbally? No. I mean, the, the people that he was dealing with were the down-and-out people, the people that nobody else wanted to have anything to do with, for the most part. And he was coming alongside them. He didn't excuse their sins. He didn't let them off. But the people who he interacted with, they understood that he had some interest in them and some reason for interacting with them that transcended his need to be right. And we see the same thing as Dr. Rustuni pointed out on more than a few occasions 
in the diaconal ministry, the mercy ministry of the earliest Christians, ministering to the needs of those around them, there certainly was nothing like that in Roman society. If you were sick and diseased, unless you were the upper upper of the upper crust, you were, you just there's no no hope for you. If you didn't have enough food to eat or whatever, and your family didn't have any money, which characterized probably a lot of people in, let's say, the city of Rome, well, tough luck. But the Christians were the ones who showed up, and because of the example and teachings of Jesus, and because of the Spirit, Holy Spirit living in their lives, they began to minister love and peace and compassion to these people. That is a very different profile, I'm afraid, that, that some people have practiced when they feel like they've always got to be in, in, a, in a pose of, like you're you're the Bruce Lee Christian, you know. You always got to be ready for the self defense fight to the finish and get revenge for. Some. A lot of these people act like they're getting revenge for somebody. You know, I don't know what that's all about. Well, Jesus said, "Whatever you do to the least of my brothers, you do unto me." And so that's certainly he didn't say. And all those theological debates that you will win, we're going to count that as a victory on our side. And so, really and truly, we shouldn't be looking at how to vanquish other people's sins. Quite frankly, we have enough to concern ourselves in terms of vanquishing our own sins. So much better to have a realistic view of where we fall short, even though we're redeemed in Christ, we're not fully sanctified. So we need to focus on what our marching orders are. And so instead of feeling as though you have to go and correct the world. Really what we do is we manifest the truth, we share the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit draws people. Very few people are going to be driven to something if they think all you are is against something. A lot of people think Christians are against abortion. Christians are against fornication. How about we really communicate to people what we are for? We are for the burden of sin and guilt being removed from individuals so that they can live victoriously in Christ, which is what they were created for in the first place. And this goes back to something I was saying a moment ago about this idea of total verbal and argumentative annihilation of someone with whom we disagree, that really has strong overtones of paganism and not of the Christian faith. As you just said, what we are about and what we want to find flourishing in this world is, as Jesus said, abundant life, life overflowing both now, now and in the world to come. I can talk about some of the time what he means by in the world to come, but the main point is, is that we can live life to the full. We can live We can live a truly, authentically human life if we follow his teachings, if we've been reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to live according to God's law and according to God's standards. It, it is a life of joy, a life of fulfillment. But unfortunately, there is that influence of the world. But look, people who may hear this may wonder, well, okay, maybe by the power of God's Spirit, by God's grace, somebody is thinking to themselves, you know, I have seen this in myself. I've seen how maybe I've been too much like the hammer looking for the nail. Well, things can change. By God's grace, things can change in a person's life. And I want to mention an example that I'm familiar with. This was told to me by someone who was in a position to know about it. And it goes back many years ago to a controversy that raged in one of uh, the main 
reformed denominations in this country. I'm going to be purposely vague about some of the details. But it had to do with a particular, in this case, a particular man in a presbytery who had been charged with teaching some things that were of grave concern uh, by those in that presbytery and in that denomination. And this was a huge controversy in its day. And at this particular presbytery meeting, this man, who was a member of that presbytery, was being examined and cross-examined on his views. And at one point, they decided to break for lunch. And the gentleman in question sat down at one of the pew, in one of the pews and just put his head on the back of the pew in front of him. And the man who had been moderating the meeting, who was a well-known leader in the Reformed world at that time, came up to him and said, Reverend so-and-so, you know, we're just trying to get to the bottom of this and understand what you're, you know, and he sort of started arguing with the guy and, and going after him, even though they had technically broken for lunch. At which point, this man lifted his head up from the back of the pew and said, Dr. So-and-so, I am so tired and exhausted. I, I can't even think straight. At which point, the man who was verbally accosting him burst into tears. And he realized, I think at that point, what he had been doing. And I don't know if that was the linchpin, but I can tell you this, the orientation and direction of that well-known Christian leader's ministry began to change and changed rather dramatically uh, in a very different way that no longer was characterized by that kind of combativeness. But it took that kind of human encounter where he realized, and again, I have to believe there's a case of God's grace at work here, because I know there are some people who would look upon that as another reason to just go even dig the knife in further, you know, but not in this case. Uh, the tears of this man made this guy realize, uh, I'm hammering somebody here that doesn't need a hammer. He needs a friend. He needs a Christian uh, uh, help and encouragement. And I believe that goes back to the idea that God's law, as our pattern for how to truly love each other. Jesus said, they'll know you're Christians by the way you love each other, right? Not how, how much you turn a phrase, not how sarcastic you can be, not how much you can win your points. And so when we approach it like that, then we have a standard by which to say, am I really trying to restore this relationship, which of course would be God's agenda, because the law is restorative, or do I want to win and somehow or other exclude this other person from having something to say or having an opinion? When it comes right down to it, if we embrace God's law, then we are going to act on conviction. Sometimes we'll have people who have opposing convictions. They think, well, I can't be right and you can't be right because we're having opposite perspectives. Well, that may be true, but you could also both be wrong. What we should endeavor to find out is, have we replaced God's truth with such a definitive perspective on our parts that we really need to step back and relook at what we're saying and even examine our motives? You know, the teachings of Jesus, the example of Jesus, the life of Jesus as given to us in the Gospels have a real serious way upending our best man-made efforts to construct our ivory towers and battering rams. And it's interesting to me, and I think it was actually Ray Sutton I heard many years ago make this comment, how many seminary students after graduation, you rarely find them preaching from the Gospels. They're always going with from the epistles. And I've often thought about that over the decades. And I think one reason for that, maybe not the only reason, maybe not even a main reason, 
when you look at the example of Jesus, and you gave a perfect example where he says, by this they shall know that you are my followers. And here I like to use something I first heard uh, Pastor Joe Moorcraft do, where he, he said, now I'm going to intentionally misquote this verse, and you, you see if you can pick it up. By this they will know you're my followers, that you use the King James Bible only, that you are presuppositional in your apologetics, that you have read Calvin's Institutes 12 times over. No, he didn't say that. He said that you have love for one another. If that bothers you, then you've got a problem with Jesus, because he's the one that said it. And that's where we fall into the trap of humanism, because let's face it, humanism isn't this thing other than Genesis 3-5, each man determining for himself right and wrong. That's humanism. That says, I think I'll have it my way. And the fact that it gets codified into civil governments and churches and associations and people's lives doesn't change the fact that that's the essence of sin. And so in using Jesus as our model for so many things, like you said, take a look at how he dealt with people. He didn't return every insult. He knew what he was here for, and he accomplished it. Scripture says, for the glory set before him, he endured the cross and the shame. Well, sometimes we have to endure the cross in our lives and the shame. So somebody insults us. Somebody takes something that we hold precious and says it's trash. Is the point in fighting it that we are going to be restorative? Or is it that we want to make this other person feel foolish? And I think if we took the restorative nature of what the law of God does, how it tutors people to Christ and how it tutors people as they're in Christ, as they're endeavoring to be more holy, as my grandma used to say, you'll catch more flies with honey than you will with vinegar. Honey is a very restorative food. The scripture talks about the land flowing with milk and honey. So maybe we need to be a little bit more like honey. Well, I think your grandmother's wisdom is a good note on which to wrap up this episode. (laughs) I think that we've pretty well established that although we must be ready for spiritual warfare, that doesn't mean that we must walk around with a combative attitude. You know, we talk about the full-orbed faith. You can't do a lot better than going back and reading the Gospels from the point of view that you were talking about. How did Jesus deal with his most vicious enemies? And really, where was the victory wrought? Was the victory wrought in the comeback or in the sacrificial giving of himself for the greater purpose that he was here for? And I think that will give us all a lot to consider for quite some time. I think that is an excellent suggestion, and I could, I could recommend no better myself. So we thank everyone for listening uh, to this week's podcast. And we invite you to join us again uh, when we come back next time with another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. And we would invite you to communicate with us by email. Uh, You can contact us by writing to outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts and suggestions, and we'll be glad to interact with you about that. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.